Welcome to Grow the Pie, the podcast where we ask the tough questions for responsible business. I'm Tom Gosling, Executive Fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School, and I'm with Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School and author of Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Alex, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be back. I have to say, of um, all of the episodes that we're going to record in this series, I think this is the one I've probably been looking forward to most because I'd say that um, there are probably more misconceptions about the role of investors than, than there are in every any other area of responsible business. Um, they seem quite often to be blamed for driving short-termism and, in some respects, being anti-purpose by virtue of the pressure they put on companies. But we're going to explore some of those issues in today's podcast and ask to what extent that's really true. And let's just get straight into it, uh, Alex, if we may, with the whole question of activist investors, which are a real sort of bet noir for uh, many in the responsible business debate. Um, Activist investors are often viewed as short-termist asset strippers who are simply trying to get a quick buck from the investments that they make in companies. But uh, how do you see it and, and, and what does the evidence tell us? Thanks, Tom. So I think I'll first uh, highlight where this perception comes from. So there are certainly some examples of activist investors which go for short-termism. For example, Carl Icahn took a stake in Transworld Airlines and sold the most profitable assets to competitors, potentially, to get a short-term return, and that eventually caused it to go bankrupt. And uh, many people would have read the book or seen the movie Barbarians at the Gate, where the idea is that an activist investor is a barbarian who tries to change many things in the company, often for the short term. And we like to have this conception of activist investors as being the enemy and as asset stripping and as a nameless, faceless capitalist just going after um, short-term returns, because that confirms what people like to think that capitalism is about. And if you're somebody who's an advocate for responsible business, you like to say, well, let's get rid of these pesky activists and let's overthrow shareholder primacy. All of those things push people's buttons and, 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 and make this case for reform against these alleged enemies. But the approach that I think we need to take, not just me in the book or as an academic, but any policymaker or any director or anyone in the media should take, is to look at the evidence. What is the effect that activist investors have on a company? And that's something that um, a couple of leading academics have done. So Alan Brav at Duke and Wei Zhang of Columbia and their quarters, they wrote a, a few papers over 10 years, which studied the impact of activism by hedge funds, and they found that the the effect was actually much more positive than we would think. So what, what was this uh, study about? What did they do and, and what were the key findings? So the first study they did looked at what happens when an activist hedge fund files a 13D form in the US. So, so what does that mean? Like in the US, when you take a 5% stake in the company, you need to make a filing. And if you intend to be activist, if you intend to change how a company's run, you need to file this 13D where you specify on part of that form how you intend to change the running of the company. And so what they looked at is was what happened after these uh, filings were made public. And on average, the stock price went up by 7%. And you might think, well, that's just a short-term stock price bump. What happens in the long term? What they found was there was no long-term reversal. If anything, the long-term return 
was even more positive than the short-term return. And that's similar to what we discussed on the share buybacks episode. So people argued that share buybacks just lead to a short-term bump. But in fact, the long-term effects are even more positive than the short-term effects. But I guess, Alex, if we're concerned about the um, short-termism of activist investors, the, the fact that the share price goes up, even in the long term, might not be cause for comfort if, if, if that share price increase has, has been at the expense of other stakeholders. So did, did they look at um, some of the underlying performance of the company as well? Absolutely. That's really important uh, when you're thinking about responsible business, because is that increase in the stock price splitting the pie? and taking it from other people? Or is it growing the pie? So one way it could split the pie is if they piled on a lot of debt and, and saved taxes, or maybe fired a lot of employees. So they did a follow-up papers looking at the sources of the value increases. And one of these papers got plant-level data for each individual manufacturing establishment that um, a company has, where a hedge fund was filing this 13D. And notice, in order to do that, it's really complex, right? You need to get special, what's known as sworn status researcher designation by the US Census. So you get access to some confidential information, which allows you to uh, study the individual productivity. And this is something where any newspaper article or a simple study claiming that hedge funds are, are short-termists won't go through all of those hoops. So this just shows how much you need to do in order to investigate this question. And what they looked at was measures of productivity. And um, they found that total productivity went up from these plants. So it wasn't through a tax-saving mechanism. Now, you might still be concerned because productivity can go up if you were to make workers work longer hours or pay them less. So then they looked at labor productivity. So labor productivity is per hour worked. So that would take into account whether you're overworking your employees. And also because it's per labor hour rather than per dollar, that doesn't give you the benefit of, of cutting wages. But even that went up. So trying to look at the underlying sources, it was that the company was becoming more efficient and more effective and that that's good for everybody. Did they look at all at other dimensions of what we might think of as being responsibility, such as innovation and R&D? Yeah, so that's arguably the most important part of responsibility. So as we stressed in the series, responsibility is not so much about do you no harm, which is cutting your carbon emissions. It's more about actively do good and innovation has a key role. And here the findings were pretty nuanced. What they found was that when a hedge fund comes in and takes control, R&D expenditure actually goes down. Now, you might think, well, that's the smoking gun that everybody was afraid of. Sure, yeah. But interestingly, what they looked at was what was the output of the R&D spending. And the, one of the best measures of output is the number of patents that a company files and also the quality of patents. So one measure is how often they're cited by future patents. And what they found was that both of those went up. So that's really interesting because it meant that the hedge fund was allowing the company or nudging the company to achieve more with less. So... In other areas of life, let's take football, which I often use as an analogy, right? We understand that companies should not just spend loads and loads of money. If you're Leicester City when they won the Premier League, that was particularly impressive because on a shoestring budget, um, they were able to, to win the Premier League. But for some reason, we don't apply 
that same nuance when evaluating companies. So if you go back to the buybacks debate that we had a, a couple of weeks ago, we really lament any company that doesn't invest every single spare dollar that it has, when actually a responsible company is one that knows what are the value-creating projects and knows when to show restraint and to pay out that cash to investors so they can invest it elsewhere. And we've spoken about one study here in some detail, but actually I mean, my understanding is that this is actually part of a pattern of studies that show that activism is on average reasonably effective at improving outcomes both at the share price level and at the operating performance level. Is that fair? That is fair. So Alon and Wayne, their co-authors, they have about three or four papers individually. Uh, and then there are some papers by other researchers looking at the spillover effects of hedge fund activism on other companies within the same industry. And what they found was that um, other companies were also improving their productivity, perhaps for, for two reasons. Number one, they might be concerned about being targeted themselves. So they take preemptive action, which is just to improve performance. Or if your competitor is just doing better, you need to up your game. Otherwise, you're going to be beaten by the competition. And I think this is really interesting because there is a lot of arguments by, by corporations and sometimes professional services firms who defend them against activist attacks who say, no, we need to have takeover defences here or a, a regulation against these activists to protect management. But I think a lot of this is self-serving because in, in many cases, one of the best protection mechanisms is actually good performance because activists can only add value and make money for themselves if they fix an underperforming company. So the best way to address that, the best takeover defense is great performance. It's innovation and excellence, as we've discussed previously. We'll come back later on in the podcast to talk about um, shareholder rights and, and takeover defences. But is there anything um, from looking across the literature, Alex, that you would sort of draw out as being the key success factors that, that enable activist investors to have this impact, uh, perhaps for some surprisingly positive impact? Yes. Yeah, so why I've focused the discussion on just activist hedge funds is that hedge funds are perhaps the most maligned type of investor. So if we can show that even these maligned investors grow the pie, then that might suggest that other forms of activism might do as well. And indeed, it's the case that what we find for hedge funds may well be generalizable to other types of activist investors, not necessarily hedge funds. So they might include active mutual funds who engage with companies, maybe not as publicly and confrontationally, but they still engage. And it may apply to private equity as well. And let's just discuss a couple of studies on those. So on private equity, there's a stream of research by Steve Kaplan and others, which looks at um, how does private equity change a company. And the results are pretty consistent, which is they improve performance, long-term performance, and this includes operational performance, so it's not just due to financial engineering. And similarly, there's studies of particularly engaged investors. So there's a UK study uh, looking at the Hermes Focus Fund. Uh, there's a US study looking at TIAA Pref and finding that this active ownership does improve uh, underlying performance. And so what is the unifying feature behind these activists, be they hedge funds or private equity or mutual funds? I think there's three factors. So one of them is the size of their stake. So they take large positions in companies. That really gives them the skin in the game. That gives them the incentive to get into the weeds of the company and understand the business model, understand what are the R&D projects that perhaps should be cut and which are the ones that should be doubled down upon. 
And that's something which is not unique to a hedge fund. That could be replicated by other investors. Number two is, is incentives. So there's people who will look at the hedge fund's performance fees, which is 20% they get in terms of incentive pay. If they create value, they, they get a fifth of that. And we might think, well, that's just being really greedy. But if we go back to the episode we had on executive pay, a 20% performance fee, that's not achieved at the expense of anybody. You only get that performance fee if you've grown the pie for your shareholders, just like we believe that for CEOs, they should have a slice in the pie because then they have incentives to grow it. And so what this means is that these activist campaigns, which are sometimes really costly, you need to do a lot of detailed analysis. Sometimes if management is intransigent, you need to launch a proxy fight. If you have a lot of skin in the game, you're going to be bearing all those costs. And then I think the final thing is the resources they devote to engagement, because for many companies, they might think, well, engagement is just a cost center. It's something where we want to do as little as possible. Maybe we'll vote on every situation, but just outsource this to the proxy advisor. But instead, what um, activist hedge funds and other active investors do is devote a lot of resources to understanding how do we most effectively engage with the company? How do we assess uh, the dimensions that we can improve and so on? And those are things which I think can be applied not just to activist hedge funds, but any active mutual fund wanting to make engagement part of their stewardship activity. This uh, point that you make about size of stake is a topic that's received further research interest, hasn't it, in terms of uh, the research on block holders, which are found to be important in helping companies grow the pie. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right. So so a block holder is a, a large investor. So an investor has a large either percentage stake in a company or a large dollar stake. And, and why does that matter? That matters for stewardship in, in many ways. So first, if you want to engage with a company, right, management is more likely to meet you if you've got a large stake. If management is intransigent, you're more likely to, um, if you vote against them, you're, you're, you're going to have a much greater influence on the outcome. And also, if management is intransigent, you can sell your stake and uh, management will, will be worried about you doing that. But also, there's, there's other ways that you can engage in stewardship. It's not just engagement. The other thing that I write about is monitoring. What I mean by that is you really understand the company as you would do with engagement, but maybe if you find that the company is not investing enough in the long term, you don't engage with it, maybe because engagement just happens not to be your expertise. Instead, what you might do is, is sell a company, even if its short-term earnings are, are high, because it's not investing enough for the long term. And again, why is the stake important? that gives you the skin in the game to look beyond the short-term numbers and really delve deeply into some of these long-term intangible factors. So regardless of whether you pursue stewardship through monitoring or through engagement, the larger the stake, just the greater the incentives you have to really understand uh, the company. So this, this question of monitoring is very interesting, isn't it? And I'd like to spend a bit of time on it because... Um, it sometimes comes across as being the sort of the poor relation of stewardship. There's a lot of focus in stewardship codes on engagement, this idea that we, sh you know, investors should be holding companies for the long term and then engaging with them in order to change behavior. But actually, the evidence on the effectiveness of engagement, other than in quite an assertive sort of activist type context, the, the, the evidence on sort of more gentlemanly engagement, if you like, is not that compelling, is it, when you compare it with the impact that effective monitoring and sale and exit can have? 
That's correct. So there was a, a study, a survey paper done by David Yermak of NYU Stern, a governance expert, um, in 2010, before the hedge fund activism research really took off. And he found that the, the success of activism in general was pretty limited. So why might that be? People were focusing on just numbers of meetings rather than the quality of, of engagement. Sometimes they might be focusing on micromanaging company when some um, investors just might not have expertise in that they've not run companies. Instead, what is your expertise um, as an investor? It's stock picking, it's analyzing a company's true value. And that's what we mean by, by monitoring. So, so why can it be such a powerful governance mechanism? Well, as you mentioned, Tom, people think that selling shares is short-termist, but I think that confuses two really important and distinct components. It's a concept, sorry. One of them is whether your holding period is long-term or short-term, and the other is whether your orientation is long-term or short-term. And what I mean by orientation is when you choose to sell a company, do you base this on long-term information or short-term information? So is your sale driven by failure to meet a short-term earnings target, or is it driven by analysis of a company's long-term prospects? For example, in 2015 and 2016, Ford hit record profits, yet many investors sold because they recognized that Ford was not investing enough in self-driving cars and electric cars. So if indeed an investor sells in the short term, that need not be short-termist, as people often malign it for being. That could be long-term, because it means that they're not fooled by a company's short-term positive earnings. Instead, it's the long-term assessment that is driving the decision. So for many people, the ideal scenario would be if a company is not investing in the long-term, you first try and engage. And if engagement is unsuccessful for whatever reason, you then sell out and doing so holds the company to account. It saves you a lot of money, just like Standard Life tried to engage with Carillion, that didn't work. They sold out. They saved their clients money. But it might be that there's some investors who, who recognize that their comparative advantage might be monitoring rather than engagement. They just don't have the expertise in, in, in telling a company how to run itself. And so if that's the case, I don't think it's a problem if they decide to sell and then just to move the capital to another company, as long as their stewardship strategy has been clear that the main way in which they're going to engage in stewardship is through monitoring rather than the engagement. I know that in this podcast series, we, we try to focus on large-scale evidence, but I always like to try to relate this to my own personal experiences and many years working with boards. An observation I have is that shareholder pressure through engagement has to get really very robust and consistent and sustained in order to bring about change. I think companies can sometimes be quite fixated on the on the strategies and approaches they're taking but if the share price starts falling because people are exiting then then that really does grab attention very very quickly and uh, and, and I think it is definitely a sort of an underemphasized uh, dimension of stewardship and I think this is this is quite surprising how it's so underemphasized because if you think about customers and, and workers right yes um, people recognize that customers you should provide feedback and so should workers but any customer, who walks away from a company which is mistreating its workers or not um, sourcing from ethical areas, that, that's seen as, as being good. And similarly, an employee who walks away from a company, that's seen as holding it to account. And similarly, I think that should be the same for investors. 
And in particular, while, while customers might often boycott on what we would call generalized issues. So they could boycott a company for perhaps not paying enough tax or um, for having insufficient gender diversity. What an investor can boycott or sell out of could be on specialized issues. So understanding the investment they're making in long-term intangible assets. And because those are things that employees and customers can't actually analyze, they don't have the expertise or the information, I think this is really complementary. So if you have customers and employees holding companies to account for generalized issues, and then certain investors exiting similarly for specialized issues, then we have this nice um, coverage of the different ways in which companies could be held to account. I'd like to bring this on to um, a, a group of investors that have been growing in importance and, and, and that don't really have the, the option of exit, and, and that's index funds. And again, index funds are often portrayed as, as being very passive, not really playing a sufficiently active role in holding investors to account. And indeed, that's not just a sort of a, a, a policymaker or general public criticism. Um, Lucian Bebchuk at, at Harvard was the lead author of a paper that was quite excoriating in its uh, views on the lack of resources devoted by index funds to stewardship when he sort of calculated the the total cost per company per year that was devoted. I think it was a couple of thousand dollars or something. But it's not all bad with index funds, is it? How, how do you view it? Exactly like that. It's, it's not all bad. We, we like to think about index being bad and active being good as the same binary thinking that we've discussed being problematic in, in other episodes of this podcast. But really, that there's different roles that index funds and, and active funds can play. And, and um, this phraseology is one that you helped develop with me is there's generalized engagement and there's specialized engagement. And so what do we mean by that? Well, generalized engagement are dimensions which you can apply to most, if not all, companies which don't require tailoring to the strategic context. For example, for all companies, we would like the CEO to hold long-term shares which potentially extend beyond her departure. We would like board independence and not too much overboarding. Those are things that are generally applicable. But then specialized engagement, those are on issues where you really do need to understand the weeds of a company. For example, when Value Act took a stake in Adobe, they suggested, well, could you change your software um, sales models from, from one-off sales to licensing? And that's something where you do need a deep understanding. And so, well, index funds, they can recognize that what they should be focusing on is, is generalized engagement rather than specialized. I think sometimes we have unrealistic expectations of investors as if it's an investor's responsibility to solve everybody's problem mm. all of the time. Yeah, in every company they're investing, yeah. <laughs> exactly. When, as we've discussed earlier with a company, right, a company's purpose should be targeted and similarly an investor should focus on where they think they could most move the needle. And I think the power of, of, of generalised engagement, this highlights one of the, I think, fallacies in the criticism that index funds are spread too thinly because they often look at a measure such as the amount spent on engagement per company. And if you're dividing them between so many companies, then it's really small. But if the resource and the expertise that you're developing is how to evaluate 
executive pay. That is scalable because if if these are principles that you can apply for many companies, then just like we discussed for CEO pay a couple of episodes ago, anything scalable that you can apply across a, a large um, company or a large number of companies and you still don't lose the power. Yeah, and I'm certainly in uh, my own sort of home territory of executive pay here in the UK, uh, legal and general, the fact that they own you know, 4% roughly of, of pretty much every company in the UK market has teaming up with other index investors and major investors across the market, given them big influence on some of these executive pay issues like um, toughening up contract terms, reducing excessive pension benefits and, and so on and so forth. And indeed, when we were uh, feeding into the review of stewardship code happening here in the UK, we were very keen to emphasize this sort of nature of there being an ecosystem of investors, an ecosystem of stewardship, rather than expecting every investor to do everything. How do you see the role for collective engagement investors who are working together in order to produce good stewardship across the market as a whole? I think this is, is, is valuable. So what do we mean by collective engagement? These are different investors together engaging with the company. And this addresses one of the concerns that people have that an individual investor might have a small stake, too small a stake in a company to, to pay any notice, in particular of the company's large. And what's really interesting about the evidence is that collective engagement between even quite different types of investors can add value. So there's the common belief that activist hedge funds are really short term and index funds are the archetypal long term investor because as you say, Tom, they can never sell and therefore they would never want to work together because of the different time horizons. But again, I think this is this binary thinking of one being short term and the other being long term when if you improve a company's performance, that helps any investor, regardless of whether you're short-term or, or long-term. So let's look at the evidence rather than just being being hypothetical. Um, there's a couple of studies by Ian Appel, Todd Gormley, and Don Kime, and what they try to look at is the causal effect of index funds on company performance. Now, causal effects are really difficult to have because like index funds will typically have larger ownership of larger companies, but it could be firm size which is driving the effect rather than the index funds holding. So what they do is they use the same regression discontinuity approach that we've discussed in, in previous episodes. But just as a reminder to the listeners, what they looked at is the fact that um, some companies, the top 1,000 companies in the US, are in the Russell 1,000. Then the next 2,000 companies are in the Russell 2,000. So whether you're at the bottom of the Russell 1,000 or the top of the Russell 2000 is essentially random, right? You could be ranked number 1000, you're in the top 1000, or you're ranked 1001, and then you drop to the top 2000. So that's something which is random, but it has a huge effect on your index ownership, because if you're ranked 1000, you're the smallest in the Russell 1000. So any index investor, any index fund which tracks that index will have a really small stake in you. Whereas if you're ranked 1001, you're at the top of the Russell 2000. And so any investor which benchmarks against the Russell 2000 will have a huge stake in you. And so what they found is that when you slightly drop, so you have much greater index ownership, 
the company's governance improves in a lot of dimensions, but also in particular, then when a hedge fund takes activist um, actions in you, those activist activities become more successful. Why? Because the, to use the title of the, one of their papers, it's standing on the shoulders of giants, right? With an activist, if you get an index fund with a large holding in you to support your campaign, then management is going to be even more willing willing or, or you feel even greater pressure to accede to your to your requests. And the fact that this activist hedge fund needs the support of an index investor in order to have a successful campaign, that addresses the common concern that, well, activist investors will do this short-term barbarians at the gate damage. That's crazy because you can't do something all by yourself. You need the support of other investors, some of which will, will have longer-term orientations. Uh, this is fascinating, isn't it? And it, it's showing how different investors playing different roles can come together to create an effective market for stewardship. But I suppose that does mean that to be effective stewards, we would want index investors to be open to collective engagement. Absolutely. And and I think many of them are. So um, within the UK, a number of index investors, or perhaps all the major ones, are members of the Investor Forum. So that's a vehicle for collective specialised engagement, where if you are an investor and you're concerned about, let's say, the treatment of workers at a company, you raise that with the Investor Forum. And if they know that another investor is also concerned about that, then they can jointly raise that to the company and say, we've got three investors who together own 15% of your stock, really concerned about how you're treating your workers. And what the investor forum has managed to do is to come up with a framework which avoids any legal issues with, with acting in, in concert. And then there's other devices for, for generalized engagement. So there's the UNPRI collaboration platform, where it might be that an investor posts an issue, um, such as sourcing minerals from conflict zones, and then gets other investors to, to rally around it. They can write joint letters to, to companies. But I think this is one of the, I think, really exciting areas of engagement that we see, just the fact that different investors can come together and address what is often known as the free rider problem, which is often seen to be the scourge of engagement, that any individual investor has too small a stake to make a difference, well, there's ways around that. And I think investors are being quite creative and quite forward-thinking in how they address um, what would otherwise be a serious free rider issue. Another sort of area before we move off index funds that I'd like to touch on with you, Alex, is this concern that through their cross-holdings in many companies, so you know, we have index, the big three index funds are now, I think, own something like 20% of the stock market in, in the US, and there are many companies where you know they collectively own 15 to 20 percent of the of the stock and there is a concern that this kind of cross ownership can shrink the pie by leading those investors to perhaps tolerate or create an environment for anti-competitive behavior and this is a so-called sort of common ownership problem and martin schmaltz wrote a paper uh, a couple of years ago that really lit the touch paper behind this and and, and it was an issue that got lots of traction with politicians and policymakers in the US with proposals being banded around for limiting index fund size and so on and so forth. How do you look at this, this question and this evidence of common ownership? Is it, is it something we need to be worried about? Yeah, so let, let me first stand in the author's corner and, and, and um, sh um, discuss the evidence that they um, use. So what they uh, construct is a measure of common ownership 
which is is based on theoretical studies. So they didn't just pluck this measure out of thin air. And what this aims to look at is the extent to which investors hold multiple stocks within the same industry. So they looked at that most famously in the case of airlines. The idea is that if you own stakes in both Delta and American and they're flying the same route, ticket prices will be higher, either because you're actively encouraging them to collude or you're just not encouraging them to compete because you know that competition will hurt one of your other holdings. And they also, to, to again, standing in the corner, they recognize that this is something which is perhaps endogenous. They use a shock to common ownership, which is the merger of uh, Barclays and Global Investors and, and BlackRock in order to, to have a shock to common ownership. And then based on that, there, as you say, that lit the touch paper, there were loads of people who immediately latched onto this evidence, perhaps due to confirmation bias, right? Because people like to think that investors are these evil capitalists who are just encouraging this collusion. And then based on this, there were some rather strong proposals. Some of them would be, let's just ban index funds or a, an equivalent proposal that would be to only allow an investor to hold one company in a given industry. And that would have really serious consequences because if you think of, say, the average man and woman on the street, we want to ensure that they bear the fruits of economic growth. So if the stock market goes up, it's not just the wealthy, it's everybody who benefits. And one way that we can do that is to encourage equity investment by everybody. But one of the concerns with equity investment is it's risky. And one of the big services that index funds provide is diversification benefit. Now, if that is taken away because of these laws, then this could be an issue. And so what did other evidence look at? Well, they try to scrutinize, well, is this effect really there? So there was one paper which actually looked at the measure of common ownership they had and found, well, that was actually not a pure measure of common ownership. What goes into that measure is not only common ownership by the investors, but also the market share of the airlines themselves. And what it did was it decomposed those two components and found that the entire increase in the ticket prices was caused exclusively by the market share component of the airlines, but not the common ownership of the investors. So lack of competition is indeed a problem, but it's lack of competition within the airlines rather than the investors themselves. There's other studies which looked at this BlackRock BGI merger, and they found that after it happened, there was that they actually sold a lot of the jointly held companies. So this wasn't an increase in common ownership. And what we've done at the LBS Centre for Corporate Governance is we've put some of the key papers there on the common ownership section of the website. So both the papers arguing there is a problem, and also the papers arguing, well, actually, that there's not a problem. But before we move on, let me just come back to this issue of confirmation bias, because I, I think it's really serious. And there have been some in, in my own profession of, of academia who have latched onto the study and then used this study to write a lot of op-eds or make lots of proposals. And I think it's really dangerous, because some of the authors of these op-eds, they have publicly admitted I have not got into the weeds of the paper by Martin Schmaltz and co-authors. So they didn't understand how they were achieving their identification. But because you could write an op-ed in the New York Times and get famous by acting on people's biases against investors, that they were able to get a lot of airtime. There are some lawyers making proposals who are potentially positioning themselves to be expert um, lawyers if there's a class action lawsuit. So 
I think as, as an academic profession, we should think about the Hippocratic Oath for doctors first, do no harm, if indeed latch on to a study, which I don't think it's Martin Schmaltz and co-authors for, but I think it's others for not scrutinising it. We latch onto this and then we use this to make some strong proposals and those proposals have a likelihood of being adopted because they confirm people's concerns about capitalism, we could really uh, have serious implications for, for wider society, including general households who would otherwise use index funds as a way of enjoying the fruits of economic growth. So if we sort of summarise where we've got to so far, I mean, I think it's worth worth pointing out that, you know, through this podcast series, we've not been uncritical of, of investors. Uh, we've noted that, you know, certain intangible investments can take four to five years to be properly reflected in, in, in stock prices, which you know, could discourage companies from making them. We've also talked about the risks of sort of box ticking approaches to ESG assessment. And we've also talked about the fact that, you know, stewardship activity can sometimes be, you know, superficial rather than fully ingrained into processes. But if we look at the sum of it all, actually, the the extent to which there's a big problem with short-termism in the investor community is probably overstated in the public discourse from what you've been saying, and that actually, investors make a much more positive contribution than is commonly thought, both to supporting long-term value creation in companies, but also doing that in a way that is supporting improved underlying performance and spillover benefits to wider society. Is that a fair summary? That, that is, and that's certainly what the evidence seems to, su- to suggest. So people think, again, with this pie-splitting mentality, that anything that goes to investors is at the expense of society. So any investor that needs to generate a return, because maybe they're a pension fund with beneficiaries, they are going to extract value from everybody else. And maybe that works in the short term. But again, any investor with a long-term orientation, they recognise that the way to create value for themselves is to uh, grow the pie and ensure that a company is improving its long-term performance. And even if you were an investor with a very short horizon, let's say you needed to, to liquidate your investment within one year or six months, the stock price of a company takes these long-term factors into account. So people like accuse shareholder value of being short-termist, but shareholder value is an inherently long-term concept. Like the stock price of any company takes into account the present value of all the future cash flows. Now, you might think, well, I've just used an academic terminology, present value of all the future cash flows, but this happens in real life. Some of the most valuable companies right now, Tesla or other tech companies, their valuations are much, much stronger than their current cash flows. And indeed, if a company does make a change which um, involves, say, an investment for the future, when indeed those things are announced, the stock price immediately jumps. So even if you need to sell within six or 12 months, if you make a change which has good long-term consequences, as soon as that's announced, typically uh, the market will, will give you credit for that. It's quite difficult, isn't it, to argue that the market's uh, hugely short term when Tesla is worth roughly the same as or even more than uh, more than Toyota. But so just as a final final topic, you know, despite the fact that the evidence perhaps doesn't support this narrative of investors being hugely short term, it is something that is is very much latched onto, and I think in particular there's a very strong corporate lobby, especially in the U.S., that seeks to uh, limit and dilute shareholder rights. And and that lobby has been getting a reasonably good hearing from the SEC recently. 
What do we know about the evidence on the various protections that uh, some companies put in place, such as takeover restrictions and staggered boards that, that limit the ability of shareholders to make changes? So there's a larger series of evidence here. And I think that the first paper on this was by um, Paul Gompers, Joy Ishii and Andrew Metrick, who were at the time at Harvard, Stanford and Wharton. And what they did is they got a data set, which um, was later uh, known as a risk metrics data set, which had a number of protection devices that companies could impose in order to protect themselves from shareholders. For example, they could have a staggered board where directors are only up for election every three years. They could have golden parachutes where it's hard to fire the manager without giving her a huge payoff and so on. Now, it's not clear whether these entrenchment devices are good or bad for long-term value. You might think these are really bad because it entrenches a bad manager. Or you might think, as some of these lobbying groups argue, these entrenchment devices are really good because this means that a CEO doesn't need to worry about being fired in the short term. She can focus on creating long-term value. So which is the case? Well, what we do as academics is we look at evidence. And what they found was pretty conclusive evidence was that companies without those protection mechanisms beat companies that had them by 8.5% per year. So so that's substantial. And that suggests that we do want shareholders to be engaged and to hold management to account because yeah, even though yeah, they don't have direct experience of running a company, they're a really important sounding board, just like many investment bankers might not have run a company themselves, but they provide useful advice. Same with management consultants. Here, actually, investors will, will provide this for free. Now, that study was not uncontroversial. There were studies which came out after that, which showed that the results changed. So they studied the 1990s. Then Lucian Bebrook and his co-authors studied the 2000s. And they found that there was no link between shareholder rights, these protection mechanisms, and a long-term returns. But their reason for why this disappeared was interesting and nuanced. They still found that companies without those protection mechanisms were more profitable, were performing better. But why this didn't lead to higher stock price performance was investors already started to price it in. So what we've seen over the time was greater recognition of the importance of governance factors. And because, partly because of the this initial paper, investors started paying attention to it, they now, these companies still uh, already had good stock prices, so didn't outperform. So that's why uh, the returns to good governance might have fallen over time, not because governance no longer matters, but because investors recognise that it matters. They accurately, accurately price it. And um, I mean, there's been some fascinating recent research, an example of how kind of new data sources are being used all the time by academics, which which give insight as to one reason why CEOs might want to reduce shareholder rights, which is uh, that it's been found to um, correlate with ageing. Is, is, is this really true? Yes. Yeah, so this this was a, a great paper by Ulrika Malmenje, who um, won the Fisher Black Award for excellent contributions by people under 40 and her, her co-authors. And so what they did was they used artificial intelligence to look at the um, photos of CEOs as they progressed through their tenure. And what they found was the, the actual 
medical age was different from the chronological age. So there's a picture of um, the Starbucks CEO, James McDonald, and in the two years before he was fired for poor performance, he aged cognitively about uh, five to six years rather than two years, which is the chronological change. And so this shows that actually that the CEO job could be really, really stressful. So there's lots of incentives to argue that activist investors are short-termists and to push for greater defences, not only to protect your job, but also to protect your health. And another thing which a, a very recent paper forthcoming in the Review of Financial Studies found is that one other way in which you can protect yourself from shareholders is if you make a charitable donation to a charity which is affiliated with one of your board members. Like the board of directors is supposed to monitor you, it's supposed to fire you for poor performance. But, well, one great thing you can do is just donate to charity. Now, as we discussed in the first episode, a charitable donation does not satisfy the principle of comparative advantage. Why? One dollar that you give to the charity is only worth one dollar. So you could instead give the money to um, investors or employees and they can donate to whatever charity they, they want to. But a CEO could have incentives to do so. What the data found was that CEO pay was 10% higher if you donated to the charity affiliated by a director. And this only held if the director was on your remuneration committee not if the director was on a different committee, which which it goes to this quid pro quo idea. And also you're most likely to be not fired for performing poorly. And this is this is really interesting because I think uh, many listeners hearing those examples will think, yeah, I, I believe that CEOs do things to benefit themselves. They're overpaid as well and so on. But there seems to be some cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, we think CEOs are, are these crooks who overpay themselves and they will bribe the directors. But on the other hand, we say, well, if they just happen to be insulated from these pesky shareholders, they're suddenly going to be angelic and think about long-term value. Uh, but the evidence suggests that it, that's not going to be the case. Yeah, and it doesn't make any sense, does it? And it does seem that the evidence, does, you know, whilst there may be CEOs who would lead great purposeful companies without shareholder scrutiny, it, the evidence does suggest that for each of them, there'd be more than one CEO who might coast follow kind of pet projects of their own volition or, or perhaps even enrich themselves at, at the expense of shareholders. So this is an area where, where we really do need to follow the evidence. So another great, great discussion. I mean, in summary, uh, Alex, do you think that shareholders on balance help to grow the pie or are they responsible for shrinking it? I think they help to grow the pie. And I think this is something that policymakers or anybody interested in business reform should heed because many of the proposals out there argue let's trample on shareholder rights, if let's have the end of shareholder primacy. Those are very popular arguments. But I think shareholders are absolutely critical to grow the pie for wider society. The evidence suggests that. And what we want is a greater role for engaged, long-term oriented shareholders, not a smaller role. So we've only had time today just to skate over some of the issues. I'd like to remind listeners that you can buy Alex's book and access a whole load of great related resources at growthepie.net. And we've now covered what the academic evidence says about adopting a pie-growing mindset. So in the coming episodes, we're going to move to how economics can be implemented in practice. And we'll start with how companies and investors can work together to grow the pie. So do subscribe to make sure you don't miss this and other episodes in the series. Thank you for listening.